Now, we're in week two, if you're just joining us this morning, in our Christmas series entitled Unbelievable, A Christmas for Seekers and Skeptics. And we've been asking questions about Christianity, about God, about the Bible, about Jesus. And I've been asked by a couple people this last week, why do a series like this? Why do a series that's geared toward these questions that we face? And I really decided to do this for a couple of reasons. One reason is that as a church, we want to be a place where people can come and they can ask sincere questions and have meaningful dialogue from different perspectives. That's the first reason, because that really runs counter to our social media culture, doesn't it? If you look at social media, it's not so much about how can I ask a thoughtful question as much as it is, how can I attack this person who disagrees with me? It's not so much, how can I have meaningful engagement with people I love, but how can I give an accusation towards somebody that I totally disdain? At least that's how I interact on social media. (laughs) The second reason though is I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that whether you find yourself as a seeker and a skeptic, or if you find yourself as a devoted follower of Jesus, if you don't deal with these questions that we're talking about, they will deal with you. If you don't deal with these questions, they will one day deal with you. Just as an example, last week we talked about the idea of God and suffering. And I don't care how healthy you are personally, how well you feel physically, or how secure you feel financially, every single person in this room will experience tragedy or suffering or some form of discomfort in your life. You are going to deal with the question that we talked about last week. In fact, um, I received a call a couple of years ago from a former student of mine. I used to be a youth pastor in Nashville. And this former student had just graduated college, and he called me to tell me the good news, but he said he also had bad news. He said, yeah, I I graduated, and I'm looking forward to, you know, going to grad school, but I was just diagnosed with leukemia. 23 years old. I'm sad to say that that student of mine, his name was Turner, he died last year. See, in that moment, what you believe about God And what you believe about God's character will make a difference. And you will have to deal with that question. So even if it's not you, even if it's not you personally dealing with or asking these questions, I guarantee someone you know is dealing with them, whether or not they're family members or friends, colleagues, maybe it's your children. At some point, if you don't deal with these questions, they are going to deal with you. And last week, we asked the question, remember, can we believe in God? And we went through some of the most common questions and objections people had for not believing in God. One of them was science. Science is opposed to faith. And the other one was suffering. How can we believe a God who allows evil in the world? The other one was about Christian hypocrisy. If Christians are hypocrites to their own system, then how can we believe in God? And if you weren't here for that message, then I commend it to you. It's online. But today we're going to ask a related question, an equally important question, and it's this. Can we really trust the Bible? If you're here on a normal week, so we've been stopping for this series for about the last three weeks. On a normal week, what we do is we just walk through books of the Bible. We teach on books of the Bible. We go line by line, verse by verse, and figure out how the Bible applies to our lives personally. 
So we consider the Bible very important. So this is an important question. Can we really trust this Bible? And this morning, I want to answer that question directly by saying, yes, I believe we can. I'm not going to hide what it is I believe. I'm going to say it right out loud. Yes, we can believe in the Bible. And I think Amy Orr Ewing, who's a speaker, she's an English speaker and author, puts it well. She says, we can believe the Bible because the Bible is intellectually sound and opens itself to our scrutiny, but also because it's spiritually and existentially satisfying. So I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that to the deepest core of my being. And this morning, I want to defend that statement by Amy Orr by really proposing three points about the Bible. First, we can trust the Bible historically. That's the first point we're going to look at. The second point is that we can trust the Bible ethically. And then thirdly, we're going to examine why we can trust the Bible spiritually. So first point we can trust the Bible historically. And this morning, what I want to focus on is not the entire Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's got 66 books to it. So I'm not going to be able to defend every single part of the Bible. So I'm going to narrow our focus to just the Gospels. And the reason that I do that is because the Gospels are the center of the Bible. They recount the life and the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus had a high view of the Bible. Jesus thought that the Old Testament books were trustworthy. Jesus studied the Bible. He knew the Bible. He actually thought the Bible was the very word of God. So if we can trust what the gospels say and we can trust what it says about Jesus, then we can trust what Jesus believed about the Bible. Do you understand? So can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Gospels? Well, first things we have to realize, and this is important, that when you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four first books of the New Testament, you have to realize that these are historical documents. You maybe have never thought of them that way, but that's what they are. They're historical records, or better put, you can understand them as historical biographies of Jesus. And nobody shows this better then the third gospel writer, his name is Luke. And Luke opens his gospel really with just telling us what he's about to write. He begins by saying, Inasmuch as, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Now notice here, if you, if you look at verse 1, what Luke says is he's not the first person to ever write about Jesus, right? He says, many, many have undertaken to compile a narrative and to write about Jesus. And we have evidence of this. If you just look back at the other gospel writers, for instance, Mark wrote his gospel in the year 60 AD, about 30 years past the life of Jesus. Then Matthew, another one of the gospel writers, he wrote in the year 65 to around the year 70 AD. And then Luke writes his gospel account in the year 68 AD or around the year 70 AD. So Luke is saying, hey, other people have written about Jesus. Realize that. And beyond that, 
We also know that there were plenty of people who were writing even before that in the early 40s and the early 50s AD. And the message of Jesus there is very concrete and it's very clear. One writer, his name is Paul, he says this in a letter that he writes to a church in Corinth. And he is writing to them about the resurrection of Jesus. And he puts it in this way. He says, For I delivered to you, church, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul is writing this, remember, about 10 years after the life of Jesus, and he's saying that The message is clear. Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was resurrected and that he appeared to many people. And you can even go and talk to them because many of them are still alive. There were letters, there were other documents, there were other correspondence, and there was word of mouth going throughout all of the ancient world about who Jesus was. So Luke's very clear. I'm not the first person to write about Jesus. Luke is also clear that when he's talking about those who did write about Jesus, they were credible sources of information. In verse 2, Luke says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. That's who Luke's talking about. He's saying, hey, those who wrote about Jesus before, they were eyewitnesses. They were people who saw the miracles of Jesus. They were people who heard the teachings of Jesus. They were people who witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. They were eyewitness accounts of what Jesus had said and what he had accomplished. And so with that, Luke finishes by saying, it seemed good to me also having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So don't you see, when when you read the Gospels, this is very important, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are not reading poetry, you are not reading myth, you are not reading fiction or fantasy, you are reading historical biography so that you could have certainty around who Jesus was, what he taught, and what he did. I've mentioned this before, you know, my kids and I, before we go to bed, sometimes we'll read Greek myths, and sometimes we'll read Aesop's fables, and if you look at Greek myths, anybody here read Greek myths, by the way? Right? Greek myths never take place on Earth. They usually take place on, like, Mount Olympus or in Hades. The characters are obviously fictional. They're titans, or they're cyclopses, or they're characters with ten heads and wings and all these things. And they live, you know, far out somewhere in the distant past, not on earth. And the purpose of these myths is to convey some kind of ambiguous moral truth, right? But that's not how the Gospels are written. They're biographies. They're about history. They're about datable events. They're about Jesus, who was born on earth at a particular time in a particular place, and it was connected to actual life. And its purpose was to convey certainty, certainty around who Jesus was. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this brilliantly. C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature at Oxford and at Cambridge. 
And he, he said that he had been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths for all of his life. He knows what they are like, but he said, quote, I know none of them that are like the Gospels. See, Lewis realized, my kids realized, we all realized that when you read the Gospels, you're reading something that is about history and truth, not about something that's about myth or legend. So we have to realize that first. That's what these Gospels are about. They are about historical biographies of Jesus. Now, I would wager if you were to ask an average person in Colorado today and you were to ask them, okay, if you agree that the Bible documents the Gospels are historical and you ask them right after that, can you trust them though? Their immediate answer would be no. They would say, we can't trust the Gospels because they're just not trustworthy. They, they, they don't read like a modern historical account. Richard Dawkins puts this well. Richard Dawkins is a biologist. He's a religious commentator. He's also very skeptical of Christianity, very thoughtful though. He wrote a book in 2018 entitled Outgrowing God. And he put forth a belief that many people have about the Bible and the gospel specifically. He, put, he said, quote, everything that's in the gospels suffered from decades of word of mouth retelling whispery distortion and exaggeration before these four texts were finally written down. See, what Dawkins is saying there is that he thought the Gospels were a lot like the telephone game, right? Anybody ever played the telephone game with kids? I actually just tried this out last night, okay? I was at Chick-fil-A with my kids. I was at Chick-fil-A with Jane and Annie, and I start with Annie, and I tell Annie, they're three years old, by the way, I tell Annie, Annie, Chick-fil-A French fries. And now you're supposed to whisper that to Jane. So she whispers it to Jane. And Jane doesn't realize what the game's about, so she just goes on, continue eating. So I'm like, okay, hold on, focus in here, Jane. And I whisper to Annie, Chick-fil-A French fries. And she whispers it over to Jane. Jane still doesn't understand. So I try and go the other way, okay? And I whisper to Jane, Chick-fil-A French fries. And then finally, Jane tells Annie. And what does Annie say, even after she had already heard me say it? Jane, cover your eyes. Very close, right? <laughs> That's the way, though, many thoughtful people today believe the Gospels came together. The story of Jesus began kind of as one thing, but eventually the message was distorted and exaggerated as it got passed down through oral tradition. Eventually, Chick-fil-A French fries became Jane, cover your eyes. But there's an author, his name's Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham is probably the foremost New Testament scholar. And he wrote a book uh, in 2009 entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And what he does is he deconstructs this telephone game idea about the Gospels really well. He says that it breaks down at many points. If you use the telephone game analogy for how the Bible came together, then it's going to break down at several points. First, he says it breaks down because of who authored the Gospels. Now, remember who authored these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, one of his inner core, and he followed Jesus for nearly three years. Then there's Mark. Mark was a close friend to Peter. He was actually uh, Peter's protege, and he was a friend of Paul as well, who was the most prolific author in the New Testament. Luke was a doctor and he was a historian. We read part of his account at the beginning of our message here. He was a close companion with Paul. He even traveled with Paul on most of his ministry journeys. And then there was John, 
who along with Peter and James was part of the inner three of Jesus' closest disciples. Now, if you think about it, because of who these authors were, the telephone game idea starts to break down, right? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not hearing the message of Jesus at the end of the telephone game. No, they were the ones telling the message of Jesus at the beginning of the telephone game. Do you see? They were the ones who were eyewitnesses, who walked with Jesus first, who talked with Jesus first, who witnessed his miracles first, who saw the resurrection of Jesus first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were at the beginning, not the end. They were the first to spread the message. They were not the last to spread the message. And that's just one day that one way that Bauckham says that this telephone game analogy breaks down. He also says that this analogy also assumes that there's only one original hearer and there's only one line of messaging. So if you watch Harry Potter, early on in the Harry Potter series, Ron and Hermione, they're held hostage by all these mermaids at the bottom of a lake at one point, like 50 or 60 plus mermaids. They eventually escape. They make their way out from under the lake and they are kind of recounting the story to all of their friends who want to know, how did you escape the mermaid people? And at first, when Ron tells the story, it matches with Hermione's version of the story. But as the weeks go on, Ron's testimony and Ron's recounting of the events starts to get embellished more and more and more. All of a sudden, Ron's retelling turns into Ron struggling single-handedly with all these 50 mermen and, you know, beating them into submission, tying them up, freeing Hermione, and giving them the miraculous escape. But there's just one problem with this. It's that Ron is not the only one who witnessed the events. Hermione was also with him. She also knew that Ron was actually one who chickened out, that Ron was the one who actually was uh, the person who wanted to give in to the mermaids. And she realizes that Ron is the one who distorts and exaggerates the story. Well, the same thing is true about the Gospels. See, in the Gospels, it's not just one line of communication, and it's not one witness to the life of Jesus, but there were hundreds of people who witnessed the life and the resurrection of Jesus. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Remember, Paul there said that over 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. He says many were still alive. He also said they knew the message of Jesus and they could be asked about whether or not what Jesus said happened really happened. So there wasn't just one witness. And if you look at the Gospel of Mark, which I said we've been studying throughout Sunday mornings here, sometimes you realize that The crowds that are following Jesus are so numerous, Jesus can't even eat a proper meal. Jesus is feeding upwards of 5,000 people who are witnessing his miracles. They're sitting under his teaching. So there wasn't just one witness. And here's why that's important. See, if the gospel writers began to exaggerate or distort the message of Christianity, there were plenty of people around who could have corrected their story. If the message of the Gospels had been exaggerated or distorted by a Ron Weasley, then there were plenty of Hermione Grangers around to say, no, that's not how it really happened. Because the Gospels didn't depend on one continuous line of the telephone game. No, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of lines of communication. So Harry Potter 
can teach you a lot about the Bible. Just remember that. So you can trust the Bibles historically. But I was meeting with a couple recently, and I was kind of, you know, telling them about how the Bible can be trusted in this way and how they were the product of many witnesses, many lines of communication. And this couple brought up an interesting point. They said, you know, because they had a lot of questions about Jesus in the Bible, and they brought up this point that history is usually just written by the winners or it's just written by the most powerful And so they asked the question, how do we know that the Gospels weren't just written by powerful church leaders who wanted to secure their own power? If you watch the Da Vinci Code, that's actually, even though it's a work of fiction, the Da Vinci Code, that's the argument that they make, and it's captured the imagination of a lot of people. The Da Vinci Code says that Jesus was a great figure, but Christians who wanted power for themselves conjured up the idea as Jesus as a resurrected king and God in order to elevate themselves in the Roman Empire. But what's fascinating about that narrative is that Christianity is actually the exact opposite. Again, look at who the authors were of these Gospels. Mark was dragged through city streets until he eventually died because he would not stop talking about Jesus. Matthew was beheaded for his belief in Jesus. Peter, the person behind the gospel of Mark, he was crucified upside down for confessing that Jesus was Lord. Luke was hanged from an olive tree and beaten until he eventually died. John, he was the only apostle who wasn't martyred, but he was exiled to live in isolation on an island called Patmos for most of his adult life. See, the gospels are not written by the winners of history. They're written by the losers. In fact, out of any historical documents that we have, Christianity might be the only documents that survive that are from the perspective of the losers. Even the central figure of the Gospels is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate loser. He's the ultimate loser who was crucified, who was arrested, who was isolated, who was imprisoned. The Gospels are not written to elevate or secure power for those who believe in Jesus. Instead, the Gospels are written by those who had no power, no influence, who are called to die in this world. So the Gospels can be trusted historically. They're written by the losers. They're not myth. They're not legend. They're not distorted accounts in order to secure power or privilege. Second point, I want to take this a step further, though. Here's what I want to propose. I want to propose that you can also trust the Bible ethically. You can trust the Bible ethically. Now, I'd wager whether or not you're here and you believe in God, I'd wager that all of us believe that racism is wrong. Or I would wager that all of us believe that sexual exploitation is evil. I'd wager that all of us believe in the equality and dignity of all human beings. Does anybody disagree with us? Okay, nobody. (laughs) Let me ask you, though, why do you believe in universal human rights? Why do you believe in equality? Why do you believe that racism is wrong or sexual exploitation is evil? Why do you believe those things? And I ask that because the Bible says remarkable things about humanity. At the very opening pages of the Bible, when God creates everything, He then creates humankind, and in a remarkable, remarkable feat for the ancient world, God says something absolutely stunning. He said, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he goes on to say later on that he gives these creatures made in his own image. He gave them dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the humanity depicted in the Bible is a humanity that is the crown of creation that reflects God's glory, that is born with purpose and dignity over all the rest of the created world. And if those things are true, we can absolutely say racism and exploitation are wrong because all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. If that's true, we can absolutely say violence and genocide are evil, unspeakably evil, because all human beings are created equal, have rights, and are to be treated with dignity and love. But if you do not believe what the Bible says, and if you don't believe in the Bible's view of humanity, then let me ask you, on what basis do you believe in natural human rights? Yavul Noah Harari, he wrote a brief history of humankind, he argues that our deepest biblical or our deepest ethical beliefs in universal human rights and equality are not self-evident truths. He wrote this, the idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. If we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Homo sapiens has no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. Now, Harari is not a Christian. He's not even really a devout theist, or he doesn't really believe in God. But what he says here is really striking, and it's true. After all, if you don't believe what the Bible says about humanity, that we are made in God's image, then it's likely that you probably believe that human beings are just the product of evolutionary natural selection. Charles Darwin, he put it this way. He said, humankind evolves from lower life forms by this process of natural selection through a process of survival of the fittest. And in this process, the strong use their power to overcome the weak. The fittest use force and death to advance their own species or group. And according to natural selection, Homo sapiens is just another species among many with no more rights or dignity than any other species from chimpanzees to hyenas to spiders. In fact, according to natural selection, death, violence, subjugation, and using power to advance your group is not only normal, it's actually what helps you evolve and become a better uh, product of evolutionary potential. So, to say that there are universal human rights and humans evolve from lower life forms and are just one species among many, that is a contradiction in terms. On their own, those things make sense, but once you put them together, it's a contradiction in terms. They both can't be true. As one author put it, he said, humankind descended from apes, therefore let us love one another. Humankind, if we descended from apes, has no natural dignity has no natu natural equality. So it makes no sense to say, let us therefore love one another. See, both of those statements can make sense on their own, but when you put them together, they both can't be true. But what most of us find disagreeable about the Bible is that when it comes to ethics, the Bible seems horribly outdated. If anybody has a real objection or strong 
push against the Bible. It's that what the Bible says about things like marriage and sexuality and gender, those are what make the Bible offensive and backwards. Now, if you're here this morning and that is you, I just want to propose to you one thing. I'm not asking you to fully believe the Bible's ethics. I'm not asking you to fully believe what the Bible says about sexuality and gender. I think if you do, you will be better off for it. But I just want to ask you, is it possible that if the Bible is what Jesus said that the Bible is, the very word of God, then is it possible that God could possibly disagree with you about gender and sexuality? Is it just possible? After all, if the Bible really is what Jesus believed it to be, the word of God, isn't it actually likely that God is going to disagree with you about very important things like gender and sexuality and marriage? See, what I've come to realize that oftentimes when we say, I can't believe the Bible because the Bible says X, or I can't believe God because the Bible says Y, what we're actually saying is, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because he doesn't think, believe, or or ask me to live exactly how I think I should live, or how I should believe, or how I should think. And friends, if that's your approach, then just candidly speaking, the only God that you will ever believe in is a God that looks like, acts like, and believes just like you. And at the end of the day, if you have a God who never disagrees with you, even on issues like sexuality and gender, then you do not have a God, you have yourself. Even in our closest human relationships, I think of my wife, Hannah, we are both similar in so many ways. I'm probably more similar to Hannah than anybody on earth. We have similar views on God. We're both type A. Actually, Hannah's like type A plus, but we're both type A. We have similar views on parenting. We have similar views on money, but we also disagree on many things. We disagree on things like movies. We disagree on when it's appropriate to start playing Christmas music. I'm, I'm a December 23rd type person. And we disagree, especially, especially on all the things that I'm right and she's wrong on. And we have a lot of those things. (laughs) See, the point being, even in our closest relationships, we disagree profoundly with people that we have a relationship with. So why would we think God would be any different? In fact, I would argue if God does not disagree with you ever, if he does not offend you ever, then the one you're worshiping is yourself. So, so far we've looked at two points about the Bible. We can trust the Bible historically. We can trust it ethically. Lastly, I want to propose this to you. We can trust the Bible spiritually. And and what I mean by that, another way of saying that, is that we can trust the Bible because of who the Bible points to. We can trust the Bible because of who the Bible is about. One of my favorite stories from the Gospels is from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has just been resurrected, but people are still downtrodden because they're not sure what this means. They've heard the account that Jesus has been resurrected, but all they know is that Jesus has been crucified. Nobody's seen him yet. And so these two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem where they were expecting Jesus to come and institute his kingdom on earth. And They're looking downcast, and Jesus walks alongside these two people who are on the road, and he's asking them, what were you talking about on your way? And they said, are you the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard the things that have happened? See, Jesus, who we thought was going to restore God's kingdom, has been crucified by Pontius Pilate. And so what Jesus does is he says to them, oh, foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so Jesus continues, he's teaching the scriptures to them as they're walking along the road and they invite him, they invite Jesus to go and eat a meal with them as they rest for a night. Jesus breaks bread in front of them and we're told that their eyes are immediately opened and they see Jesus for who he is. And they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? See, it was at that point that they realized for the very first time, all of the Bible, the law of Moses, the prophets, all of it pointed to Jesus and his life surrendered for people like them. C.S. Lewis, remember I mentioned him earlier in his spiritual autobiography, he recounts how he always used to think that the Bible was a farce, that it was a fantasy. But it was once he started reading the Bible and seeing Jesus at the center of it that he said, the Bible is not simply a set of rules. It's not just a fanciful myth like I used to think. It's a book that points to the only one who could satisfy my soul. And once he discovered who the Bible was about for the very first time, he said it was as if his imagination was baptized. Lewis's way of saying that he finally understood what he needed most spiritually. He did not need a set of spiritual disciplines or a moral or religious paradigm. He needed God himself in the person of Jesus. He realized in Jesus was the only person he could have that would give him spiritual life. Many of you have maybe never thought about the Bible in these terms, but that's what Jesus is saying because Jesus says, The Bible is about me, he's saying. It is not first and foremost a historical document. It is not first and foremost a book of ethics or morals. It is a book that points to his love and his grace for us because he realizes what we most need is himself. We need Jesus, a God who is nothing like us and who disagrees with us profoundly. That's who Jesus is. I'm gonna close with this. Vince Vitale I mentioned him last week. He's a philosopher. He's an author. He wrote that Jesus disagreed with us. His very coming on earth was an act of disagreement with us. It was a statement that we required saving because our lives have disagreed so badly with what he intended for them. In the life that he lived, the things that he taught, and the way he laid down his life, Jesus is the greatest expression of God's disagreement with us. What Vital is saying is that God is fundamentally in disagreement with us so much so that he was willing to send Jesus to show us how far we've actually fallen. It's in the life of Jesus we see what we should have been and how far short we have actually fallen. But Vital continues by saying, and yet... Even though our lives are nowhere near what God intended for us, simultaneously Jesus, by his death, is the greatest expression of God's love for sinners like us. That's what Jesus was like on the cross. He was nothing like us. He showed us that he disagreed with our sin, but that he loves us enough to die for that very same sin. Hannah woke up on Thursday Remember, Hannah's my wife, and she woke up on Thursday, and it was a week where we were getting ready for a Christmas party that we were having on Friday, and it was a busy week with our kids finishing up school, and she woke up exhausted and tired, and as a result, she was short, she was angry, particularly at me. (laughs) And you know what my response was that to Hannah? Well, I was going to fight fire with fire. 
I was going to be passive aggressive. I wasn't going to talk to her when I went upstairs to take a shower. I was going to be short with her when she was short with me. I was going to accidentally cook her one less egg. I was going to accidentally burn a piece of her toast. I was going to fight fire with fire, match tit for tat until I felt better. And I realized in that moment, as I was wrapping up this sermon and not cooking Hannah an egg, (laughs) thank God Jesus is nothing like me. (laughs) Instead of fighting fire with fire, instead of being passive aggressive with me, Jesus simultaneously disagrees with my sin and lays down his life for my sin. He simultaneously gives me everything I do not deserve and takes the wrath that I certainly do deserve. Thank God We have a Bible that shows us a God who is nothing like us, and we serve a God who is nothing like me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so righteous. You are such a loving God that you gave us 66 books which point directly to your son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is nothing but life and grace and love and forgiveness. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would baptize our imagination by your spirit to see the beauty and the believability of your son, Jesus Christ, that in him, our souls would be nourished, our hearts would be satisfied, our sins would be forgiven, and your glory would be proclaimed. God, help us sing your praise. Help us sing of the name of Jesus, the one who lived, died, resurrected, and ascended on high and who is coming again. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Um, I'll open up the thread. If you have questions, please text them in, and uh, we would love to address them. So I'm not seeing anything on the thread yet, but in the room, are there any specific questions that people have? And you can also text them in, and we will look at them. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, You talked about how there is... We can, we can trust that there's no distortion from Jesus to the writers. What about from the writers to us now? There was a lot of translation, a lot of people deciding which of those, which of those um, letters get to mm-hmm. be in the Bible. Um, so what, yeah. about, what about that distortion? Yes. So, yeah, good question, Lauren. So just, just to uh, reiterate your question, make sure I got it right. Okay, so the trustworthiness of the gospel writers, but then there's a different problem of, all right, so they, what they wrote down, how do we trust what's been transmitted to us today? Yep. Yeah, totally, absolutely. So different language. All of the, so I'll answer it by saying this. The first is, according to pretty much any ancient historical uh, scholar, they, they'll say about the Bible that, the amount of text that we have for the biblical manuscripts is about uh, 150 times more than uh, any other ancient document that we have from the ancient world. So I think the, the closest other one is uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars. So the amount of manuscripts that we have helps us in this, and here's why. Let's say uh, me... Tim and, you know, another person, we're all rewriting and say we're, we're scribes that are copying the gospel of Mark, the original, and we're copying it for our community. 
So I'm you know, copying it for community A, Tim's for community B, then there's person for community C. Well, if you have multiple people copying it, as we do, then what happens is if I make an error at some point, what scholars can do, it's a field known as textual criticism, they can go back and look and see where, oh, it looks like this manuscript tradition, manuscript tradition A, is off on Mark chapter 13, verse 7. And what they can do is they can compare it with like sources from that time because we have so many and see, oh, this person uh, copying manuscript A, that's the person who's an heir. So they correct that heir using manuscript B and C. And because we have so many of those documents, it's not just three lines of transmission, right? We have thousands. So um, that's the way that we can trust it. It's a, it's a field known as uh, textual criticism. So that's the best way to get at that. The problem with language is any problem that you have when you're translating anything, right? Um, but if you were to look at all of the major English translations of the Bible, any differences that you see are pretty superficial. I mean, um, we're talking about differences in nuance of word, not difference in concept. So that, that's how I'd answer that. Does that help? It's just a difference in how language functions. So if we were gonna translate from English to German, there would just be trying to communicate the concepts from one to the other requires, um, you know, just some, some work. Uh, but the reality is we have the, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that, and both of us, part of our schooling was to learn Greek and Hebrew. And so that's what we're getting this from. And then the translations into English are just doing that work of how do these same concepts then translate into English and trying to do the best you can um, for, for that. Please don't ask me to speak in Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> I get so hey, nervous Daniel. when I have yeah, a microphone. I'm so sorry. Um, similar question. So Laura, I like Lauren's question, you know, a question of um, preservation, translation. Mm -hmm. But what about selection? So yeah. how can we have confidence in the texts that were ultimately selected, yep. both from the New Testament and maybe even the Old as well, but yeah. even focusing on the New Testament, you know, how can we trust in the historical selection of those documents? How do we reconcile issues between, like, say, First and Second Peter, which seems to have different Greeks and texts? We don't know who the yep. author of Hebrews is, those, those types of questions. Totally, totally. So uh, usually the question is not so much the Old Testament. Usually it's the New Testament. And how did we get the 27 books of the New Testament? So that's a fair question. The first time that anybody really set out to say, okay, here's what's in, here's what's out, was around the year 325 A.D., um, usually when we hear that, we're like, whoa, that's a long time past. So you have all of these documents and you got people 300 plus years after the life of Jesus then making selections, right? Well, the problem with that is, A, uh, there weren't really that many documents that were seriously considered. So if you look at any documents that um, were considered to potentially be in the New Testament canon that weren't, there's really only three. First Clement, the Didache, and the Shepherd of Hermes. So you can go look those up online. Um, the reason that those were rejected, um, you, for the issues um, vary across of them, but really what the people at the Council of Nicaea were looking at as far as is this book good for the New Testament and can be considered the word of God was its connection to the apostles, whether it had a legitimate apostolic connection, the second was whether it's consistent with previous revelation and doctrine. And then the third is um, uh, its Jewishness, 
right? Does it, does it depict a uh, version of Jesus that cohered with the first century, right? Because, you know, the Didache, Shepherd of Hermes, and First Clement didn't hit all three of those criteria, they were said to be out. So then you wonder, okay, were there any books that have made it in that were questioned? And the only ones that were legitimately questioned, um, and Tim, you might be able to correct me on this, but the first was the book of Hebrews. The second was um, Second Peter. Uh, the other one was um, James. And then I think second, or Revelation. Revelation. So those are really the only books that people would say, okay, we're not 100% sure about this. But nonetheless, let, let's say those books weren't selected. Is anything lost? Did we lose anything about the centrality of Jesus' death, the centrality of Jesus' perfect sinless life, the centrality of uh, the gospel message? None of that's lost.